There's really two very common types of interview questions. It's behavioral questions. Tell me about a time when, give me an example of, and then hypothetical questions. How would you do X? What would you do in Y scenario? And the candidates that are able to tell me how they've done it and how they would do it are going to be your best hires. Because if they can define the how, that's going to give me insight into how they would do it in my position. It's in 30 minute hour. Where you grow into your power. Welcome to the 30 minute hour. It's the personal development podcast for the seven figure entrepreneur who's looking to level up and become unstoppable. I'm your host, Eric Twiggs, your procrastination prevention partner who's conducted over 28,000 coaching sessions. Now, the super CEO, the business strategist extraordinaire, and all-around good guy, Ted Fells, my co-host, will not be joining us today. He is attending a conference. We definitely wish him well. But today, we're going to talk about five secrets to recruiting rock star employees. Our guest today, uh, he's applied what he's going to share at a company, I don't know, you may have heard of this company before. I'm not sure. I'll put it out there. Google. There you go. He's he's applied this at Google and other places. Uh, he's an expert. He's got perspective from both sides of it, like what you should do during an interview and ultimately what applies to our entrepreneur followers as far as how do you find that rock star employee? At the end of the day, it's all about buying back your time that you can work on the business and not just in the business. So we'll, we'll talk all about that. But please remember, this is not your everyday podcast. We do things differently here on the 30-minute hour. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all of those places where we've got 1.1 million total downloads up to this point. We thank you for following us, but don't forget to subscribe. So that way you never miss an episode. You can also watch us live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. All right. Again, we're here today to talk about the five secrets to recruiting rock star employees. I'm going to go ahead and introduce the man of the hour. Uh, he is an interview and negotiation consultant. He's focused on helping clients land in big technology companies, specifically Google, Apple, Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, so forth and so on. Uh, he's been running his business, Practice Interviews, since the beginning of 2019. He's conducted over 2,500 one-on-one -on -one interview slash negotiation sessions, and he's created an interview mastery course. Uh, he's also going to be releasing an AI practice interview tool Later this year, he's got over 15 years of experience recruiting, experience, uh, in recruiting, including five years at Google. So please join me in welcoming to the 30 Minute Hour podcast, Jeff Sipe. Uh, 
Thank you so much, Eric. I just sincerely appreciate being here today. I'm so excited to chat with you. Yeah, it's uh, truly an honor to have you on the show. And this is something I've been looking forward to since we had our uh, our pre-call several weeks ago. This is just a fascinating topic that can go in different directions. I think we're going to help the entrepreneurs that are watching us because that's just a tremendous struggle. You know, how do you really identify the rock star? Because people are good at saying, telling you what you want to hear during the interview. But then when you get them, it's not always the same story. So, so we'll get into that. Uh, before we go there, I did want to provide some background perspective. So, so when you were at Gettysburg College, what was the vision that you had for your career back then? It's a long time ago, so I, I have to kind of flash back a little bit. But I, I actually switched my major a few times, and I ended up as an English literature major. And I thought, well, I'll just become a professor. It'll be really fun. I love reading. I love literature in general, and I will teach others about how to read great books and what a great thing to do. And then uh, I found out that the requirements were trickier than I had anticipated as a 22-year-old to get all mm. the additional degrees necessary. And um, this was in 1999. And so I, I kind of fell into the same trap as everybody does. I, I went to college in Pennsylvania, I went back to Boston, and I got a job in finance. So... <laughs> To say I gave up on my dream pretty early on in my career is uh, it's pretty valid. Yeah. Interesting. So if you could go back and, and talk to that younger version of yourself and, and be a mentor to that version of yourself, what advice would you give? Yeah, I think for all of us, obviously, this is something that we see time and time again, probably multiple times a day is self-belief. And I was incredibly fortunate. Uh, my parents really instilled self-belief into me. It was very ingrained, but I think sometimes we just forget. Even people like us who probably really believe in ourselves on a daily basis, I just forgot to continue believing in myself. And I think that's why maybe I followed the more traditional path of doing what everybody else was doing, because I thought that maybe this path of going and being a professor was going to be too difficult. So I, I fell back on what was easy as opposed to just saying, look, you can do it. You just got to put in the time and effort. Yeah, I, I think self-belief is, is the starting point of success on any venture uh, that you're trying to undertake. And I think it helps to surround yourself with people who, you know, who see things in you that you might not even see in yourself. 100%. Yeah, sure. Now, self-belief is the key there. Uh, so you end up working for Google. First off, like, how do you go from, you know, where you were, where you decided to move forward with finance? How do you end up at Google? Yeah, so what I found, and this is all try not to be too long winded on this part of the story, but I got into, I was living in Boston and I got into real estate sales and I understood that I liked people and I liked sales and my friend got a recruiting job and I was interested in moving to California. So my friend, another friend got me an interview for a company in San Diego. I flew out, I interviewed, I got the job. That first recruiting role did not work out, but I kept coming back to recruiting and eventually got back to that in my career. 
And I will tell you, and we can chat a little bit more about this during our conversation, but I kept my LinkedIn profile very up to date. And through every role, I would add all those new positions I was recruiting for. And one of those was software engineers. Not surprisingly, Google loves software engineers. And so they actually recruited me. And so somebody randomly reached out, said, hey, would you like to work for Google? And long story short, um, I actually got a role as a contractor there to start. I did three virtual interviews and they hired me the same day and I had to pick up and leave San Diego and move up to the Bay Area. And it was just incredibly surreal, but, but they actually found me and recruited me and that's how I ended up there. So now, wait a minute. Okay, Jeff. So I've heard all of these stories about like how it takes years and the, the interview process is so long. You got to talk to 28 people before you can get a job. That's even entry level. So, so why were you able to, how did you get on their radar? First of all, you must've been doing some dynamic things to get on their radar. Yeah. Again, I, I think that this is where maybe there's a little bit of a misconception. So let's clear it up. Okay. A strong LinkedIn profile, the value of a strong LinkedIn profile, in my opinion, and not everybody cares about money, but some people do, and maybe some people <laughs> who are listening do. And the reality is, is that the value of a good LinkedIn profile is probably worth more than a million dollars over the lifetime of your career. And so really early on when that platform came out, I used it. I was a really diehard, aggressive user, and really that was the one item. And then I was really fortunate to go in as a contractor and be converted uh, very, very early on. I was converted in four months to a full-time employee, but um, the contractor path in the door is actually easier. You only have to do a few interviews to get in as a contractor. So I was given a one-year contract. I was able to get in the door and prove myself. So anybody who's looking to get into one of these big tech companies and considering a full-time versus a contract role, contract role can open the door yeah, you have to make some sacrifices in regards to benefits and all those items, but it's a it can be a good way in. And that's how I got in. And that's why the interviews happened so quickly and I got the job offer so quickly. Hmm. OK. All right. So what, what inspired you to transition from recruiting at Google to working for yourself? Yeah, so I 100 percent left with no plan. Just to be really clear, I did not have a plan. I did not have a strategy. I knew two things. I knew that I didn't really want to be a recruiter anymore. And I knew that I wanted to be my own boss. And the second item was the most important to me. I was really willing to do anything to work for myself. I had just kind of come to the point where I realized I thought that would be a really good career transition that if I hated my boss on a given day, that boss was me. And I was I was really more comfortable with that than anything else. And so um, basically, actually, it's kind of a funny story. Really briefly, I was never planning on staying in kind of the recruiting space, but I saw a really bad YouTube video on giving job interview advice and I thought I could do better. And so I went and I shot a YouTube video that was way worse than the video that I thought was bad. <laughs> And then I kept shooting videos and, and people started watching. And that's when I was able to build my business. But it was all basically an accident. Hmm. So, so, wait, so, so you knew that, you know what, I just don't want to work for anybody. So you just quit and, figured, and just figured it out from there. 
Yes. And I would say that, you know, and, and Eric, we could probably talk for hours about this. I always tell people who want to start as entrepreneurs, the number one item they need to do is they need to financially plan if they're going to take mm -hmm. that step. And, and we know that 90 to 95% of people start with a side hustle. I was incredibly fortunate that I did not cash out a single share that Google gave me in my time there. So I had equity that I could sell in order to build up my business. And that that's exactly what I did. But I, yeah. I also just want to recognize that very, very few people are as fortunate as I was. So I was in that rare 5% where I said, look, if I don't make money for a year, I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to be okay. But I know that that's, that's not a position that many people are fortunate enough to be in. Okay. And the other thing that stands out from your story is that you found a unique need. You, and it was really, I just believe a lot of businesses are birthed out of frustration, right? You were just frustrated with selling. You were just frustrated with what you were seeing on, you know, guidance as it relates to the interview process. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the video I saw had 10 million views nope. and I mean, to, to put that in perspective, I mean, I haven't even come remotely close to that, right? But but the advice would actually have hurt interview candidates. If they had followed that exact advice, they probably would be more likely to not get the job than get the job. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw that video, I, I really thought I could provide some really simple, impactful tips that would help people have better success. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, this could be a takeaway from this episode is that if somebody's watching us and maybe you're working for a corporate office right now, but you want to be a full-time entrepreneur, think about what frustrates you, right? Think about your frustrations and, and what can you, what, what alternative can you provide? Because chances are, if it frustrates you, it's frustrating somebody else. And Jeff, you, as you've seen, Jeff, from this is a, a huge need as far as how to how to interview and you know how to present yourself the right way so that you that you get the position. Um, so let's talk about. It. So you're the founder of Practice Interviews. So talk. So who is your target client and how specifically do you help them? Yeah. So unintentionally, because really my specific client is anybody who wants to get better at interviewing or better at negotiation. I mean that that's really my target client, but in reality, it's big tech. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. that's 95 to probably 97% of my clients are trying to get into Google, Apple, Meta, et cetera, trying to get into those big tech companies. I believe the area that separates me a little bit from my competition, because I have a lot of competitors who do the same thing, is I follow a system, meaning mm -hmm. that I, I never coach my clients winging it. I give them the exact structure I want them to use, how I want them to organize the information within that structure, and then what's the level of detail. And I call that sod. I think about like sod, like laying grass out. And if they follow those items, they tend to have better success because there's, there's a structure and system behind it, which before I started this, I did not understand the value as an, of an, as an entrepreneur of those items, but that's the foundation. And then everything is backed by building stronger communication skills and 
layering everything with gratitude, positivity, and kindness, because in reality, candidates that are kind, when they negotiate with a really kind and gracious tone, they make more money and they're more likely to get hired. And it seems so simple, but that item is quite forgotten in the interview process. And it's something that we'll talk about in a moment that I want entrepreneurs and employers to be thinking about when they're hiring people as well. So like for people who are interviewing, do you see like, are there common mistakes that, that are just hurt, hurting their chances, but for them, it's, it's just a blind spot. What are some of the common things that people do that, that are really hurting them on these interviews? Yeah, so we could start in like the very beginning when they, because the vast majority of job interviews are still virtual, they, the interviewer turns on the camera and the presentation isn't good, whether the background's messy or they're not well-kept or they don't even look happy. Like when the interviewer comes on, they should look like this. You know, I mean, their face should be stuck with this huge smile. Like they should be super excited, that lack of enthusiasm. Then as we get into the interview, uh, really building connectivity with that audience. One of the most crazy items, and I'll stop and let you kind of probe a little bit, but if a candidate was to go through three or four interviews, for example, the likelihood that they answer at least the wrong question at least one time is probably around 100%, meaning that almost no candidates restate and confirm the question that's being asked of them. Mm. And therefore they're tweaking the question a little bit, sometimes changing it quite a bit because they're just not confirming what was asked of them. That one simple step would increase people's likelihood of success by a huge percentage. And that's just one of many things we should be talking about. So, so bear with me, Jeff. I, I have something that's it's like a unofficial thing I come up with just based off of my experiences with interviews and coaching people. I have something I call the law of diminishing grade, right? So like if, if I interview somebody and I have a feeling, I feel good and I feel like they'll be an A player, typically when they get on the job, they'll be a B, right? Because they're doing everything they possibly can to put their best foot forward to impress me, right? So they're probably gonna be a grade down. So my theory is that if I'm interviewing someone and I'm like, yeah, I give them a C. When they come work for me, it's gonna be a D or an F. Yeah. You, would good you assessment. agree with yeah, good assessment? Agree. Okay, good. <laughs> So, so that's why, you know, because because the, the trap I would run into is when I'm interviewing somebody, I'm like, yeah, they said the right answers, you know, yeah, I'm sure they've been on other interviews before, but it's just something I'm just not impressed. And, and I, I just caution people, if you're just not impressed during the interview when the person is doing everything they can to impress you, I think that's a sign. Yeah, and and remember also, Preparation. I mean, if they're stumbling through one or multiple items that are likely low-hanging fruit should be pretty easy. If they're not going to prepare for something as important as an interview, are they going to prepare any of those items that you're asking for them on the job? Probably not. So 
It's just such a good indicator. And I, I think you're right. We should be excited. And I know it can be painful to wait for the right person, but sometimes that's just necessary because hiring the wrong person, this is also something that I strongly encourage entrepreneurs and employers to think about. All the data and statistics on the cost of a bad hire is so underestimated. It's about 20 times more than what people think it is. They say it's about a half a year's salary or a full year's salary. Sometimes it's 10 to 20x that because it's the lost opportunity cost. The lost opportunity cost can oftentimes be in the millions because they didn't land the right client. You lost a big client, et cetera, et cetera. The mistakes they make are compounding. And the longer you hold on to them, the more they compound and the more expensive they become. Plus the money you spend to onboard them, right? Yep. The yep. Training oh. and everything that's involved there. You fly them out somewhere for training. You absolutely, yeah, that all adds up. Yeah, it's painful. Absolutely. Well, well, hopefully we can alleviate some pain for people here today, yes. Jeff, and keep people from from making bad hires uh, or, as, or as many bad hires and get better with this whole process. So well, let's talk about the, the five secrets to recruiting rock star employees. So what's the first thing people should think about? Well, like what's the first secret? The first secret is communication, hands down. I mean, if there are any hiccups in the communication, and that's both body language and verbally, if we see any hiccups in the communication, any doubts, that's the number one, because they're going to be communicating with us, with other employees, with potentially vendors, contractors, external people in written communication. So. I always look at communication as the foundation. And so a few things are, do they have good general overall body language? Do they have good eye contact? So I have you down below, but I'm actually staring at the camera to keep that good eye contact. Listening. Do they find the nice balance? Eric, we have a really nice balance today. We're not talking over each other. Are they able to just listen and be in the space? That's a huge challenge for most people. And then are they curious? Do they ask questions? Listening and questions are going to be two incredibly important indicators of whether that's going to be somebody who not only is a good employee, but somebody you enjoy working with. So I totally agree. And I think it, it helps. One of the things, again, Jeff, another one of my little theories, you know, kind of the the 80 20 thing. So I, I think uh, an effective interviewer is talking 20% of the time and listening 80%. Because from what I see, and again, I welcome your expertise, is that generally people are uncomfortable with silence and they feel like they, they feel the need to talk when, when there's more silence. And I think you find out more about that candidate. What, what are your thoughts on that? The interviewer should be speaking very little. The, there's times in the beginning, I think the interviewer needs to speak a little bit more to create the psychological safety, to let them know that they want to make it interactive, that they might ask follow-up questions. I think setting that kind of safety, it, it gives candidates, it makes them feel more comfortable. But then it's questions and follow-up questions where 
it, I mean, it might even be less than 20% where the interviewer is speaking because they just don't need to speak that much. It's all about hearing what the candidate has to say and poking at what they say. And again, in a kind and gracious manner, but just trying to uncover more because the deeper the candidate dives, the deeper the interviewer is going to understand, is that true depth? Did they really do that? Or did somebody else do it? Or were they making it up? So yeah, absolutely on that 80-20 for sure. Yeah. And I like how you say poke at it. So one of the things is, oh, really, tell me about that. Tell me more. Yes. And if I was more prepared, there's a good, um, there's... I'll have to find it. I'll just, I'll message it to you, but there's a good three tiered system for a specific way to ask follow-up questions. But mm -hmm. when I go through it with my clients, I always know all the specific things I'm looking for in each section of their answer. And I'm always poking at those items to, to bring it out of them. Cause once they share it, I can learn so much more about them and, and ultimately determine whether they are or they're not a fit. Um, and again, I'm, I'm kind of putting on my like I'm hiring as an entrepreneur or an employer hat. Yeah. And do you recommend that the entrepreneur watching us has questions, interview questions in front of them or some type of an interview guide before they sit to the candidate, sit with the candidate or that they just kind of go off the cuff? No, I, I, I think that the only way to determine whether you're going to hire the right person is to ask all the candidates the same questions. It's because if, because if it's off the cuff, then they're not following a system or process and they're starting to let an, a tremendous amount of bias creep into the process. It's really following that system of questions that they know are critical for fulfilling that role. And so, yeah, you can have some warm up, some fluffy questions, but they should really be diving in. And those questions should be incredibly consistent. Don't ask different candidates, different questions, ask all the candidates the same questions. And then if you hire that same position a year later, switch up the questions a little bit. Yeah. And I think the having the questions, it kind of frees you up to listen because you're not so focused on, okay, what am I going to ask next? Yeah. So exactly. now this is good stuff. So communication is yep. the, one of the, the key secrets to finding that rock star. All right. What, what's next? My second one. And I, this is probably, I'm just going to highlight this as the, probably the most important because it may be the most different item that I highlight, which is what I like to call how. And so there's really two very common types of interview questions. It's behavioral questions. Tell me about a time when, give me an example of, and then hypothetical questions. How would you do X? What would you do in Y scenario? And the candidates that are able to tell me how they've done it and how they would do it are going to be your best hires because if they can define the how that's going to give me insight into how they would do it in my position and most candidates tell a story we don't want a story we want they did a by doing b c and d and then they did e by doing etc cetera, etc cetera. so I always drill and poke at the how, because the more they tell me how they did it and how they could do it or would do it, the more I envision them in the role. And ultimately, those are the people that get hired. That I've never heard it put that way. So and, and I think that's critical because sometimes someone could have had success, but it was just really more of them being in the right place at the right time and not necessarily 
something they did. And the challenge of that is, they, would they be able to replicate it for you? Yes, 100%. Would they be able to do it for you? And that's why behavioral questions are great because they, they actually demonstrate how they've done it in the past. But that's why I also love hypothetical questions that put them in a scenario that they're likely to face in your position because you're seeing how they would do it in your role. And if they're able to clearly define the steps they would take for how they might do it in an imagined scenario, that's somebody who's going to be able to respond and react and adapt and adjust really well on the job. Hmm. So, and this is different because everybody tout the behavioral interview as really the way to go. So from what, from your experience, you're saying that the how is more critical. Yeah. And I mean, how definitely shows up on the behavioral side, because if they give a behavioral answer, but they don't say anything that they specifically did, somebody else did it and they're just telling a story. So it is the mm -hmm. how is important on that side, but I also want to know how they would do it. So how they've done it and how they would do it are are just that's where I spend the vast majority of my time with clients, because if they can bring that to the table again, what it does is it's so powerful because it helps the interviewer envision them in the role and therefore they're much more likely to be hired. Good. And one of the things I see too with A players, A players usually can talk about specific results that they've had in their past, right? That's one of the things. So they'll say, you know, when I worked with company XYZ, I ranked third in my region in gross profit improvement. And so they, they tend to talk more specifics where I, I find the, the lower performers talk more in generalities. What are, you, what are your experiences with that? 100% agree. And with results, one of the items that I look for them to bring to the table is obviously numbers, like you just mentioned, are critical. Results should be numbers driven. Also, when they're talking about results, I look for repeatability. So like on a behavioral answer, if they said, and the biggest win was that we created X process and that process was now used on all major projects moving forward. Mm. So they're really talking about impact on a larger level, larger scale, because I'm going to hire somebody who continues to, they've done things in the past where they could be scalable. And that's something that I definitely look for as well. Like not just results of I did this, but I did this and it impacted the business here, but also here and here. So I look for that really broad scope scalability sort of stuff as well. Fantastic. So we're talking about the five secrets to recruiting a rock star employee. First, we talked about communication, we talked about how, what's secret number three? Yes. Yeah, so this is, this is the lost art which is nobody, I don't want to say nobody, but very few people are actually calling on references anymore. They're so convinced that candidate Jane or candidate Bob has is only going to give perfect references and there's nothing that that reference will uncover that make me want to hire that person more or less. Reference? say some really interesting things. And I would say that reference checking is a lost art. You can even use, this is from a, a book, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but um, you can even use the threat of a reference check to uncover 
items. I think it's, I don't remember the, it's, it, it's a really famous book. And then they did a follow-up book, which is called Who, which also talks a little top bit grading. about this. Top grading. So mm -hmm. some of the top grading stuff is so aggressive. And I think <laughs> a little bit over the top and can lead to incredible, incredible um, candidate fatigue. We need to remember that like law of diminishing returns after a certain number of interviews, they just get fatigued, tired, and you're not going to get the best version of them. So, so top grading is very aggressive, but I still like the idea of references. And I think that you could parlay that out into a couple of different ways. You can use references and just call old managers. That's not great because managers do have a specific way of looking at people and there may not have been alignment there. And that doesn't make that person a bad employee for you. But if you give them the option and say, hey, I'd like to talk to your managers, that threat of it is they're like, oh, I don't, you shouldn't talk to any of them. That's a flag, right? And then even with their references, you can poke at those references in a really gracious and kind way to say, you know, what is that one challenge area for Sue? Like, let's just talk about it a little bit. I love Sue. We're probably going to hire her. And then that reference might uncover something that's so significant, especially for your role. And I just, even at Google, I saw them stop doing reference checks hmm. for a certain level of employee. And so all of a sudden we weren't really checking references. And, and I, I still think that that's a critical, critical item. Yeah, sometimes I think too, there's a confusion where we think, you know, you're not allowed to ask a reference certain questions. That's really not the case. It's really what they're willing to answer. And one of the things I, I share with people is that I, I'm not aware of anybody ever getting sued for saying something great about somebody, right? I mean, so if, if I have someone who's great and you call me, I'm gonna say great things about that person. So it sets off red flags for me when if I call someone's former supervisor and they say, well, I can't really say anything else other than they work from here to here. That tells you everything I need to know. Yep. Chances are they weren't great. You, you make an amazing point that people should just really take a moment to think about. You are not going to get sued if you say great things. I think that's such a valuable point. And I think that for the great employees, people would just say, hey, like it's our policy not to say anything. And by the way, they were great. But if they said it's our policy not to say anything, and by the way, they were terrible, then of course, <laughs> that's a little bit trickier, of course, yeah. Yeah, but you no, know, the problem is if, if they, you say something and then somehow that cost them the position and they find out, da, 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 da. So, yeah, so I think that that's definitely something to consider. But I agree with you. I do think the um, calling references is a loss in the process. And then when a lot of times I'll, I'll get someone, they have somebody that didn't work out and we do the debrief. Okay, let's look, let's walk back and see what happened. Most cases we didn't check references. Yep. And you'll be, you'll be amazed at what people will tell you. I, I remember we had somebody, <laughs> it was pretty much a done deal. They were just checking references as a formality. And would you hire them again? Absolutely not. <laughs> goes into this long story and we ended up not hiring him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it, and it was worth it. It was worth yeah. it. it. I think the challenge is that 
entrepreneurs and employers see it as a waste of time because I do think that the majority of references are going to say positive things. That's why they're a reference. But right. there are just moments where even if it's 10%, that 10% is absolutely worth the time to not hire that person who would not have been a good hire. And again, just going back to what you said earlier, Jeff, the the cost of a bad hire or the wrong hire is often underestimated. And then it can be multiples of 10 10 times, six to 10 times the salary of that individual. So the, I, mean, I, I think it's worthwhile to take that pause to do that. Okay, so, so what's secret number four? So this one's interesting because it's, I think that it has a little less relevancy now, but I, I do think it's really important. And that's how they treat everyone in the process. So what happens during the interview process is they're interviewing with Eric and you're the hiring manager, you're, you know, you're the person running the business and they're very nice to you, but are they as nice to everybody else in the process? So where does this show up? If we were still doing in-person interviews, which some people still are doing, how do they treat if it's an employer, for example, how do they treat the receptionist? If they have an on-site cafe, how do they treat the person who they're buying the meal from or getting the meal from? Um, if they're walking down the hallway and there's a janitor cleaning the floor, how do they treat them? How they treat others, again, and this could be in person, this could be in written communication, how do they treat the recruiter? How do they treat the other interviewers? They should be treating everybody the same way. And so that does show up. And I actually had this experience. I wasn't planning on talking about it today, but I can bring it up briefly. Uh, we were going to hire somebody at Google and I went on vacation and I looked at the notes in the system and this person had treated my boss who was taking over for me while I was out. They had treated her really poorly. And I went back through the notes and I talked to her about her experience. And she's like, you know what? It's okay. We'll move forward with this person. I said, no, we're not going to move forward. I brought her and the hiring manager into a meeting. I showed the notes and I said, this is what happened. This person doesn't deserve to work here. This is not somebody that we want in the process. And I had to call that person and I said, you're going to learn a very good lesson today. We're not hiring you. And it was my decision. And <laughs> You need to learn how to treat everybody with kindness and, and gratitude, et cetera. And so I don't know where that person is now. I, I didn't keep anybody's information. I can't even remember who I hired. I've forgotten it all. But but it's a really valid point. Watch how they treat and interact with everybody. Because if they treat you great, but they don't treat the recruiter great or the receptionist great or whoever it is, it's just really, really important because that's going to show up in other ways if they don't treat everybody with graciousness and kindness. Great point. Great point. You know, there's a there's a famous story floating around about a CEO and part of his hiring process is he takes the candidate to lunch and then he has the waiter or waitress deliberately mess up the order just to see how the candidate is going to respond. And apparently the CEOs had people go off on a waiter or waitress and he's not he decided not to hire them based on that. I love it. I love that because 
that's how they're going to show up when things go wrong on the job. I love that mm -hmm. case. I, I haven't heard of that, but that's awesome. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's important. We talk about the interview process to have, don't just have it where they're sitting in your office, right? On the other side of the desk where they can just put their best foot forward. It's good to have them see them in different settings, take them to lunch or dinner with uh, their significant other. You maybe have your significant other where you can kind of see them in different settings. How do they interact with each other? How are they interacting with the waiter? Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? Just having different, seeing them in different settings. Yeah, I mean, I really like that. And and as a kind of rule, like some of these companies say, look, we don't do in-person interviews, but having an informal coffee chat, especially when it's the hiring manager and the candidate, if it's a local position, I think that makes a lot of sense. I had an interview. Um, this was in 2010. And the hiring manager took me to a busy coffee shop and intentionally seated me so I was looking right at the door where people were coming in and out and I didn't pay attention to those people at all. I've stayed focused in on him, but he told me later on and he, I did actually get a job offer from this company. I ended up going somewhere else, um, but he did tell me that he intentionally did that to people to see how distracted and if they could stay focused on the person they were speaking to. So it's Mm. There's some really interesting um, tactics there. I think some of it might be uh, might be too much for somebody on a given day. Like sometimes people just don't deal well in those environments. So I, I think it's it can have some value. It, it might depend on the person, though. You could just you could get a great person, but they just don't excel in that type of environment. It's just something to think about. Yeah, no, that's interesting. The, the focus. That's what I haven't heard of. Okay. Yeah, that was a I, I I'm glad I passed that test, but I did not know <laughs> being, I did not know I was being tested. <laughs> All right. So so what's the fifth secret? Yeah, so initially I I I, I was kind of thinking about okay, five secrets. And so I actually want to switch this one up. I, I think that if we're talking about hiring rock star employees. I think more of what we want to focus in on is, okay, we think we identified the right person, setting them up for success once they get on the job. So that mm. onboarding needs to be great, but it's also a little bit of like personality assessment should come in really early on, whether that's Myers-Briggs or DISC or Colors or any of those assessments to understand if the person's really analytical or X or Y or Z, because then the approach can be changed a little bit in onboarding and you're really catering to that person's strengths and skills to make sure that they're going to be incredibly goal aligned and get to those goals. I think establishing incredibly strong, smart goals, OKRs, because when people don't have a clear vision of what they need to do, that is a huge point where people just fall down. They don't really know how they're connecting their goals to the overall vision of the organization, no matter how small it is, I think not having those set goals. So really those first three months of onboarding and then making sure that there's continuing one-on-ones and that those one-on-ones continue to get back to the goals of what were set in place right from the beginning and then tweaking those goals as needed. So the onboarding is absolutely critical, but I don't think it's being done as well as it can to make sure that once those employees come into the organization, they're being set up for success. 
Wait a minute, Jeff. Now we're getting controversial. You mean to tell me I can't just check the box once I've, once I've, uh, I mean, look, I mean, uh, communication was good. You know, they told me the how. Uh, I checked the references. I paid attention to how they, I took them to the restaurant, paid attention to how they treat. I'm not done. That, that That's not it. <laughs> no, you're not done. Yeah. And I think that, <laughs> I think that also, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of reflecting back and to my onboarding um, at all my companies. And a lot of times people are just getting thrown into it. Um, and I think that, that even for, as we think about performance-based roles, like anything sales-based is just giving that person maybe their quota in the first three months. It takes some of the pressure off. I mean, we could introduce another data point. I can throw a huge curveball at you if you want. One of, one of the biggest reasons why that onboarding piece Again, all the pieces are critical, but that could be the most critical is uh, people actually cannot be accurate judges of other people. So there's a great book if nobody's read it or if people haven't read it. It's called The Nine Lies of Work. Have you read that book, Eric? No. What's The Nine so, Lies of Work, is it? The Nine Lies of Work. So lie number six is that um, people can accurately judge other people. They've actually determined through studies that uh, we can't. So what that means is we are going to judge and rate, especially employees, based on our particular way that we see the world and our lean. And that's why, like, I'm pretty analytical. So if I get somebody who's more creative and just kind of free flowing, I might really, I might never see them as a great employee. But if their boss was really creative and had a similar style, they might see them as a great employee, still doing the same exact work. And so this is why it's really tough to be an employee because it's very hard to accurately judge employees. They've actually said it's not possible, which kind of looking at the studies, I agree with. But if you can set the onboarding up appropriately, you can at least be matching styles, understand a little bit about how that person is going to excel, really getting connected with their style. I think it would be absolutely critical for success. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. Nine lives of work. I, I've got to check that it's out. A great book, but once you read Ch Lie Six, it will <laughs> it will change your perspective quite a bit. <laughs> look out for lie number six. Right. Yeah, look out for lie number six. One hundred percent. All right. Now this is this is great. Uh, the, the onboarding. I agree with you again. It's it's critical to ensuring. You know, and I think the challenge is as an entrepreneur you just kind of step into it and try to figure it out and figure it out. Right. But yeah. most of the population isn't wired that way where they need structure. They need to know, okay, what's the expectation? How, you know, what, what, how am I doing? What's next? That type of thing. So I, that's something really setting up an onboarding process. is critical. So if our entrepreneurs, they're like, look, this is, uh, th this is too much for me. You know, I need help. I'm taking it. They can reach out to you and you can provide them with structure and uh, guidance as it relates to setting up like an onboarding process or anything else we've talked about. Yeah, I mean, I could I definitely have some friends who are conducting those kinds of businesses. I actually tried to start that business uh, this year and 
it's just unfortunate that I don't believe organizations prioritize this as much as they should. I created a second YouTube channel to coach businesses on how to do this. So I do have that second YouTube channel that I can direct people to. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it does and can feel extremely overwhelming to try and hire the right talent. But if the systems and process are in place, that's the front end work. Then once it's set in place, just little tweaks over time is what's going to make it most effective. But yeah, the, the initial setup is difficult and painful. But once it's in place, all the money saved by not hiring the wrong people is going to be so valuable over time. Okay. All right. So this has been a fantastic conversation. I am curious. I know you get asked all kinds of questions by people at different walks of life. Um, but what's one question you never get asked that you wish people would ask you? It's it's funny because this is this is actually our, I don't know how to articulate this, but I'll just say it. So all of us content creators in the job space joke about one item. The question that nobody asks us is, how do I network to get a job? So like, it's very well known that networking is a great way to get a job, but nobody actually asks, well, how do I go about doing that? But the number one item that people don't ask in regards to networking is they, they, sorry, they ask it, but they don't actually implement the strategy that I recommend. And I have a strategy that's incredibly well-defined and I'll tell you, 0% of people follow through. And when I tell them how to do it and I present the strategy and all the information, I say, you're not going to do it. And they don't. It's <laughs> really weird because if you were to go on LinkedIn today and you could look at all the posts that people have done over the last 10 months this year, you would find so many posts that say, I applied to a hundred jobs and I didn't get the job. I applied to a thousand jobs and I didn't get the job. But People aren't networking and they're not asking for a really well-defined strategy for how to network. And if people knew how to network and asked more about it and were more engaged, uh, they'd find themselves in front of a lot more jobs, a lot higher paying jobs, et cetera. And it's just, it's funny if, if I were to produce a video on networking next week on my YouTube channel, nobody would watch it. And I know that because I've created them before and nobody's watched them. That's interesting. So do you, do you have you have a defined process? Can people connect with you and get the information? Yeah, so, uh, so I actually, I have this on my website for free. I have a free templates, practiceinterviews.com. And mm -hmm. so basically really high level, Eric, to, to make it really short and sweet, the, the way to network is given. So you identify people that you want to network with. And instead of asking them for something, you give them something. You find a recent article, a recent video, and you just share it with them and you ask for nothing. And you repeat that over and over and over again. And what will happen is it's so unique and different that people will come back and ask how they can help you. I know the strategy works. I used it in 2010 when I got crushed by the economy back then and it worked for me. And I know it works, but it's just people don't use it, but they can grab that free template. I have a ton of free stuff on my website, just templates that people can use that will help them with their interviewing, negotiation and networking, et cetera. That's 100% true because most people at a networking event, they're 
promoting themselves there. Yeah, you, you exchange business cards all of a sudden. Now you're getting their emails for their newsletters. <laughs> Where that if you're just connecting them without expecting anything in return. Sorry, imagine going to a networking event and having somebody say to you, well, tell me what you're looking for. And you say, you know what? I'm just here to listen. I want to talk to as many people as I can today and figure out how I can help them. Who's the one person they're going to remember from that networking event? They're going to remember Eric, the person who came in and just tried to help. And then who is the first person they're going to think of when they want to try and help somebody? They're going to think of Eric. It's such a basic, basic item. But yeah, just asking how you can help others always. It's it's a win win. You give to them and usually they'll come back and try and help you as well. No, that's great. That applies to if you're trying to find a job, if you're trying to get business. I think that that applies too. I mean, I think every entrepreneur who's watching or listening to us could apply that and increase their levels of success. So, Jeff, thank you for sharing that. And I'm confident, Jeff, somebody's going to take you up on it. Somebody is going to actually do it. I hope. I hope. <laughs> but you, know, you know what it is? It is what I think it is. It's, it sounds too simple, right? Yeah. We, we're all looking for the lightning to strike from the sky and all of that. But that sounds too simple. I think that's why people kind of go past it. I think I, I never thought of it that way, but... I agree. Sometimes, sometimes things just seem so easy. And, and that goes back to the very beginning of our conversation. Sometimes self-belief, they're like, oh, that, that's just too easy. If I just believe in myself, things aren't going to just fall into place. But you'll see it from anybody who's been successful. They'll tell you that that was the foundation for them. And so yes. sometimes the simplest things are, are, are the things that lead to the best things in life. For sure. For sure. Okay. So we're, we're at the final moments of the episode. It's called write this down. And this is where we'll both go, go around and we will talk about at least one idea from today's episode that we feel like the people need to write down so they can level up. So Jeff, what do the people need to write down from today? Yeah. So I actually had something else in mind, but let's, let's go back to the how. Let's go back to strategy number two. So if they, if, if anybody watching this is thinking about interviewing, for example, writing down how they've done things or how they would do things because, and this could be transitioned over to entrepreneurs and employers, how would they like the job to be done, right? Because if, if they're constantly writing down how, then there's going to be no misalignment. And there was one other quick item I wanted to add in, Eric. The how is so important when it when entrepreneurs and employers are writing job descriptions because sometimes they're, they're writing out like what they want and how they want it done. And sometimes just look at the job description and say, is, is this one job or is this three jobs? Because we're seeing a lot more of that now, like a little bit of recessionary. Um, I'm seeing employers trying to fill three positions in one position. So when they're thinking about how they want the job done and what they want, I would just say, make sure to just double down and check, hey, am I really trying to hire for three roles or one role? Um, that can be an important other item. I went on a little bit of a tangent. So um, tell me if that was clear enough for the audience. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the big takeaway is focusing on the how. Uh, that's good. I, I'd never heard it expressed that way when you said it originally. Uh, and I do think that, that that'll tell you a lot uh, about uh, the person that's in front of you. So good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, so my uh, write this down, it, it reminds me of um, uh, something that I heard from Jim Collins in one of his books where he said, first who, then what? And I just think when you look at, when you look at a scale and get to the next level, I think you, you need to focus on the who. And there are a lot of people that, that I've coached and there's, oh, I've got all this problem, I got this. No, I, you don't have 10 problems. You have one problem, it's a who problem. <laughs> if you, we can address the who problem, you know, that, that's gonna help us to scale and that's gonna help us to move forward. So I, I think who is underestimated a lot of times. You're really getting good at surrounding yourself with the right people. And I think if you, th this is a masterclass by Jeff as far as what to look for and how to, how to focus if you really want to increase the likelihood of bringing on um, a rock star or a top performer. So I, I think really embracing the critical, how critical it is that you get the who right. So first who, then what? Write that down. Love it. All right. So Jeff, you, you've got people on the edge of their seats. How can they connect with you to get more information about your services? Yeah. So everything can funnel through. My business is called Practice Interviews and the website is practiceinterviews.com. And that's a great place to connect to any of my social media. I'm really heavy on YouTube and LinkedIn. Those are my two primaries. I usually post five to 10 times a week on LinkedIn and then uh, new original content on YouTube every Monday. And then I go live on YouTube at 10 a.m. Pacific time every single Tuesday. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. So, I mean, I do one-on-one -on -one interview and one-on-one -on -one negotiation coaching. I do have an interview mastery course and my AI tool is in development. Development sometimes takes a little longer than you want it to. So I, I believe the paid version, according to my team, will be out in January. Um, and that will be that will be the primary focus of my business moving forward, just so I can basically impact more users by having a, a software product as opposed to the one-on-one -on -one coaching, even though the goal is to continue that coaching through next year. Great. Jeff H. Sipe, again, you can find him on practiceinterviews.com. Thank you for sharing everything that you shared with us today. And for those of you listening and watching, don't forget to share the show. And also don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any of those places. That way you never miss an episode. This concludes this week's episode of the 30 Minute Hour Podcast. Until next time. Have a great Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the 30 Minute Hour Podcast. We need your help to grow the show. One of the best ways that you can help us is by leaving both a rating and a review. You can go to Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or any of those other podcasting platforms and leave us a rating and a review. We've got a bonus that we're running for this month, a special bonus, that if you take a screenshot of that rating and review and you email it 
to E-R-I-C at E-R-I-C-M-P-W-I-G-G-S dot com. You get entered into a special drawing where you can win a free copy of my book, The Discipline of Now, 12 Practical Principles to Overcome Procrastination. And then lastly, don't forget to share the show. That's right, share the show. Share this show with someone in your network who you know will benefit from the message. Again, I thank you for listening. And remember, don't allow perfect to become the enemy of progress. So keep growing, keep growing, keep growing.